Hello, audiobook fans. Welcome to another episode of Harper Audio Presents. I'm Andrew Caberline. I can't hide that I am in a great mood today, and it's all because I'm very happy that you're about to listen to this episode. It's a real winner. A little later on, we're going to debut a game that's very near and dear to the hearts of the Harper Audio staff, and this game is to be played by you, the listener. That's right. One of you at home will be the winner and walk away with some free audiobooks, so look forward to that. But first, we've got a rollicking interview with the author of Cemetery Road, Greg Isles. You may know Greg from his popular Natchez Burning Trilogy, and Greg is really a bit of a renaissance man who's lived a really fascinating life thus far. We're going to talk about what it's like to moonlight as a rock star, how to write about the South, and how a car accident led to the reset of Greg's career. We're going to talk about so much more. This one is really action-packed. Greg also plays a round of the self-awareness game, and honestly, I have to apologize because I made this one particularly difficult. Sorry, Greg, you're a real trooper. Okay, enough monkeying around. Here's my interview with Greg Isles. So you were raised in Natchez, Mississippi, correct? Correct, yes. And that's become the setting for a number of your novels. Uh, And I'm curious, was the decision to do that a write-what-you-know kind of situation, or was there something else that drove you to write about your hometown? Well, you know, right when I started, I disobeyed that dictum, write-what-you-know. <laughs> I, I, I did two World War II novels, mm-hmm. and I did it um, in a very calculated way because I had been a musician, and I was I realized, you know, I wasn't going to be, you know, the best in the world at that, and I was traveling 50 weeks a year. And oh. so I, I, I couldn't sit down to write the great American novel. So I, I sat down to write a best-selling novel, which I did. And, you know, the pressures of the industry sort of push you to keep doing whatever's successful. But after the second one, I realized, you know, this is, this is uh, fun, but this is the wrong road. And, and I did have an obligation, I thought, to write what I knew. And so, you know, I made that transition in the third book. I didn't quite come to Natchez, but I went to Mississippi mm-hmm. in the setting. And it just, it led steadily home. And once you get there, without sounding pretentious, I hope, you sort of, <laughs> like Faulkner, you get to that little postage stamp of your own native soil and you realize that it's just uh, endless in terms of the stories you have, you know? I I think I've read somewhere doing some research about you for this interview that at one point, were you living in the same space that Faulkner used to live in? Yeah, I lived in the in the uh, house. They call it a cabin. It's sort of a little two room house building where his what they called his mammy lived. You know, yeah. his African American caretaker. And Faulkner and the other kids uh, spent a lot of time in there, and she told them stories. So that was, you know, I was living in there. I was uh, taking classes from the Mississippi writer Willie Morris, who edited mm-hmm. Harper's in New York for years. And he brought down William Styron and James Dickey, who wrote Deliverance. And we would do things like uh, they would show Deliverance in this little theater, and Dickey <laughs> would get up and talk to us. And so, I mean, you know, I was about as immersed in the South and Southern literature as you can get. It was, I was lucky. You know? Wow, that's uh, that's astounding. I just love that that's the situation you found yourself in. I'm giving away my age with all that, though. I'm feeling with with deliverance, young. it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all right. I'm a young guy, and I've seen deliverance a few okay. times. So, so don't deal. don't feel bad about it. Um, okay. <laughs> I have to ask, um, what's it like hearing your own words read back to you in audio? 
in all honesty, mm-hmm. I usually don't listen to them. Yeah. And it, and it's not that they ha- there haven't been good ones. There have. And until recently, my favorite one was done by a guy named J.O. Sanders, who played a role in uh, JFK and some other things. And it was one of the World War II books, and there was a Scottish general. And Jay J Sanders did the whole part, I mean, literally in the voice of Sean Connery. It gave, <laughs> it gave me chills, you know. But but other than that, I tr- you just, uh, as the writer, you know, I try to explain this to people when you're out promoting or you're on TV or something. You're sort of like an actor. When you finished a movie, you, by the time you're out actually promoting the thing, you're on to the next work that yeah. you're doing. It's very hard to to revisit and and to listen to the audio would sort of be you, you confront your own mistakes or regrets rather than listen to the performance. You know, yeah, they're they're put there right in front of you. There's yeah. nothing you can do about it at that point. Exactly. <laughs> so so you mentioned um, previously being on the road for fifty weeks a year as a musician. Uh, yeah. So I was going to ask if you always wanted to be a writer or how you transitioned into that. So it sounds like you wanted to be a musician first. Yeah, to give you the the briefest answer of that, this, <laughs> this comes up a lot, but uh, I didn't really want to be a writer, no. I mean, I, I always read, I admired writers. Uh, my, it was, my dad was a physician, but the love of his life was books. My mother was an English teacher. Writing was just the thing that I could always do without trying. So... All the way through school, teachers would would just say, oh, you have this gift or whatever. I didn't really care. I, I didn't see how that was going to help me get a date or do whatever it was <laughs> I wanted to do. And playing guitar or drums or whatever sure was a lot more fun. And so, you know, halfway through college, I took a year out. And then after college for about eight years, I played for a living. And I'll tell you now. Being a musician is a lot more fun than being a writer. I mean, <laughs> as, as a writer, you get paid more, but you sit in a room by yourself for a year, two years at a time. You know, you're completely isolated. As a musician, you're up in front of thousands of people, interacting with people every day. It's, it's, and that's, you know, that's why the rock bottom remainders exist, I think. Yeah. All these super successful writers have more fun playing music and being out in the people, you know? I, I'm glad you brought up the rock bottom remainders. Uh, I feel like there are probably even some some super fans of yours who maybe aren't aware of the rock bottom remainders. Could you give us a quick rundown of the the lineup that you guys have put out there over the years? The band's been around now for God, I, close to 25 years. That really gives away age, but it's uh, <laughs> it, it's a few sort of marginally successful scribes. <laughs> yeah, some people you may have heard of. Yeah. yeah, Stephen King, Amy Tan, Dave mm-hmm. Barry. All uh, those Matt, hacks. Matt, yeah. Gra- Matt Groening from The Simpsons, Ridley Pearson, I don't, Mitch Album, Tuesdays with Maury. I don't want to leave anybody out. Roger McGuinn from The Birds plays most gigs with us. And, uh, God, I'm leaving Scott Turow, presumed innocent. Um, there's just— There's a lot of people on A lot list. of people. It, you know, a lot of people get on the stage at various times, but that's that's the core band that, I, that I've been talking about. And we have some ringers in there who are like studio cats who who prevent it from being a complete train wreck. Yeah, they keep you guys on time. Yeah. yeah, it's not a it's not a serious band like you see some of these actor bands and they're up there playing covers trying to be perfect. You know, this band started sort of as a joke just for fun, and it's all been for charity, and it's a crazy show. But over the years, I got in about three years after it started, maybe four years. So a core of us, myself, Ridley Pearson, Rich, Mitch Album, 
were real musicians before the band. And then mm-hmm. Dave, Bar- Dave Barry is a lot better guitar player than he says. And so what you, <laughs> what you have is sort of a, a core of real musicians and everybody else put together. And it's this crazy stew of, you know, I mean, I won't describe the show, but it's uh, it's pretty <laughs> wild. It's it's all humor-based, let's say. Mm-hmm. So you've been a hotshot writer. You've been <laughs> in a rock and roll super group. So is there any other dream jobs out there that you're hiding your talents in that you're hoping to dive in next? Are you going to be like an astronaut next out of nowhere? Man, I really just want to direct. I'm just I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, uh, to tell you the truth, you know, I've... Uh, that that's a serious question because after 16 books i mean this is a tough job i think people think writing is especially if you're a southern writer they picture you sitting on the veranda having a mint julep and and yeah. writing writing a few sentences a day you know and that that's not what it is it's a very intense deadline driven business and um when you write books of the length that i do it's a, it's a lot of stress and so I've had some opportunities to do TV, but what I've found so far is that uh, it's sort of like my limited experience in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Unless you're in control of the thing, you're not going to be happy. Yeah. And, and when you're a beginning writer, you know, you're glad to just get anything on the screen. <laughs> you know, you'll take whatever. But when you're in the position I'm in, I mean, I've seen some pretty successful guys get TV series or films. And I do not like the result. And I I don't want to just have another show on Netflix or Hulu or whatever. I want to have the show. Yeah. And and so unless I'm the showrunner, co-showrunner, whatever, it's it's going to be a tough transition. It's it's interesting you bring that up. I I know you've you've had some screenplays produced as well, or yeah. at least yep. one. At uh, least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that is actually like a surprise to a lot of readers that that you don't have that much control as a screenwriter in Hollywood. And I think back to, uh, I think it was Steinbeck who wrote the movie Lifeboat that Hitchcock did. Uh And then Hitchcock kind of redid everything. it's like, man, if Steinbeck can't make it as a screenwriter, there's no hope for anybody. Here's here's my best story about the power of writers in Hollywood. The Rock Bottom Remainders were doing a show at, uh, let me see, UCLA with Steve Martin. So, you know, Mm -hmm. fun gig. We're, we're all in this sort of transit bus trying to find, I guess, the studio or the university, whatever we were doing. There was a driver, and we were lost, and we almost were just wiped out by this big truck. I mean, it literally almost killed us, and somebody said, uh, wow, can you imagine the headline if we'd all got killed in that <laughs> car wreck right there? And Dave Barry goes, yeah, Stephen King and 10 friends die in a traffic <laughs> accident. <laughs> That's you it. You would, know? would have been a footnote in that. Uh... Exactly. Uh-huh. In Hollywood, <laughs> you're you're less than nothing. You know. Uh, you mentioned the the length of the books that you write, and that's something that you're definitely known for. I'm curious if that length factor is something intentional, or if that's just kind of how it's shaken out, or if that's just what you're more comfortable doing. You know, this is starting to be a thing. I got to ask this yesterday, so people are definitely noticing that. Um, I it's, think, it's easy for us to notice in our yeah. end when you see it in like CD copy and just see how many discs that is. Yeah. In well, here, here's what the deal is. I've written a couple of what you'd call, what I would call short books, really sort of standard thriller length things. <laughs> but even my standard novel is pretty long. It's about twice as long as a 
I don't want to name anybody, but you know, the, the, the usual thriller type writer. So how did it get to be that way? Well, first of all, I tend to write in a very granular way. Okay. The shocking thing for people, you look at a book like Natchez Burning, which mm-hmm. is 800 pages, really only about four days pass in that book. And you go, how is that possible? Four <laughs> days, 800 pages. But when you think that I tend to write first in a sort of a minute-by-minute way, I dive very deeply into the psychology of most characters, and most of all, I have a pretty dense sort of historical context or matrix. You have flashbacks, you have a lot of actual history blended in with the fiction, and so, you know, the result is sort of a, I don't know, Pat Conroy meets James Michener or something, Mm -hmm. you know? It's just, uh, they just get big, but uh, I think it's... um, I'm sort of proud of the fact that I've managed to be a bestseller writing 800-page books because that's that's pretty rare, you know. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough to do. I think just to, like taking around uh, like physical copies of oh, those yeah. big books is a. It's well, it's good. You get a workout for free. Well, the it's price t- of buying the book. Yeah. yeah, it's tough at every level, though. It's tough on the editors. It's tough in the production process. The books you can't ship as many books in a box. They don't, you know, in the airport store. There's maybe two copies of my book because <laughs> that's all that fits in the shelf. So it's like I'm creating problems all the way down the stream. So in that sense, the ebook uh, is great for me because people don't really know how long it is. You know? Yeah, with the I, audio too, it just it keeps coming. It's like yeah. a- <laughs> I think though, you know, I haven't done myself any favors because it 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 puts a lot of people off who I think otherwise would really like the books. They look at that and they go, "Wow, I just I just don't know if I can start that," you know. Yeah, but then they can brag to their friends when they finish reading <laughs> it. They're like, "Hey, look what I just accomplished here." <laughs> yeah, I mean that trilogy. No kidding, all put together, that's that's over two thousand pages, and uh, that's I look back and I'm like, never again, never. <laughs> I'm in that Game of Thrones territory with that. You know? Yeah. This one wasn't on the list of questions I had, but you brought up uh, how you blend fiction with real historical events. I'm curious how much of your time writing a book is physically writing it and how much is research? Okay. that's uh, You know, when I started out, I did a tremendous amount of research. First, I was writing not about home, as you said, but mm-hmm. second, I sort of had the luxury of time back then. Um, now that I'm writing about the South and Mississippi, I don't have to do as much research, but I don't spend a lot of the year writing, to tell you the truth. I, I'm i pretty unusual. Most writers I know are kind of methodical and they get up and write every day. I, I don't do that. I, I try to do nothing <laughs> while, while the thing is passively sort of working itself out. And we don't have a space here, but... Um, Stephen King has a great analogy for how that sort of works. He talks about the basement of the uh, the writer's subconscious mind being like a house and the basement being the subconscious and how there are a bunch of boxes down in the basement that are unlabeled. And the, the worst thing you can do is go down there and try to sort out those boxes mm-hmm. because there's already a crew down there sorting out those boxes. And your job is to stay out of the way. That is, that is so perfect because when it finally happens and I'm just – coaching my kids' team or playing music or whatever it is, I, I compare it, in all honesty, it's like a pregnant woman when her water breaks. It's like, <laughs> man, that book is coming. And then I hit my recliner and my big screen set up and I start working literally 18 hours a day 
from wow. start to from start to finish until it's done. I drink tab and gobble <laughs> down food and hardly get out of the chair. That's how it works, man. I thought you were gonna say you drink tab and you hit tab. Yes. Yeah. There you go. That's a good one. Yeah, you should you could put that on a t shirt. I just want okay. like two percent of the royalties on that. <laughs> yeah. One, one. Yeah, I'll take one, honestly. <laughs> um I think it's fair to say that a big part of what people love about your writing is your portrayal of the American South. Um, what do you get right about the South that other writers maybe misfire on? Let me say this. First of all, the last three years have revealed something very profound. We've all suffered through the past three years of insanity, but it revealed something about America. You know, for a long time, Mississippi, the South, but Mississippi in particular, has been the whipping boy of the nation on race. Mm -hmm. And what the last three years have revealed is Mississippi has no monopoly on racism, you know? <laughs> Um, that the re the rest of white America is a lot more like Mississippi than than they ever would have admitted, you know, mm -hmm. or like Mississippi is supposed to be. So what do I get right about it? I think that I've been willing to just be brutally honest, not quite from the start, because my first Penn Cage book was a bit of a valentine to the town I grew up in, even though it dealt with a race crime, it wasn't brutally honest. But after that, and particularly in the trilogy, I was more brutal than I really thought I would ever be. And I'm not saying never brutality for its own sake, but tr sort of you want to take an unflinching look. And second, I've tried to be unafraid in terms of portraying African-American characters or female characters or whatever. And I, I don't have much patience with this view that, oh, well, you're a white guy. You have no right to write a black character, a female mm -hmm. character, whatever. I mean, does a you know does a woman not have a right to write a, a male character? Does an African American author not have a right to write a white character? I mean that kind of thinking is just crazy. Mm -hmm. You either get it as authentic and true as possible to where people accept it, or or you don't. You fail. You succeed or you fail. And I hope I've succeeded to a degree. And you know now the good thing is that there's more opportunity for the authentic voices. I mean, you see Jessman Ward win all these awards, and now Angie Thomas yeah. from Jackson, Mississippi, has just broken out huge, and she's a great talent. So there, there, there are all different voices out there, and I don't want any writers to be afraid to take on anything. The thing is just getting at the truth. And, uh, and, and on both sides, don't be afraid to defend the South either because there are a lot of good things about the South that, that have gotten lost, I think, in other parts of the country. Uh, I read somewhere that you prefer to write during the night and sleep during the day. Is that still how you write a book? I think that's a legacy. Started as a legacy of being a musician because yeah. you, you know you play till two a.m. Then you break down equipment till three thirty, and then you drive to the next gig, and that pretty much got burned into me. My dad was that way because he practiced medicine all day and then he'd read books till three, four in the morning and then get up <laughs> at seven and go practice medicine. Um, and then what happens when I write a book, it starts that way. We'll put it this way. It starts out, I, I, I'd say I begin at like uh, one in the afternoon and work 12 to 18 hours, but I slowly push around the clock the whole time until the ideal point is I work till about eight in the morning from the previous night before. That's like the eye. That's when you're in the zone, man. Yeah. You're just going all day, all every waking hour. 
the uh, first nine to five jobs that I worked were not actually nine to five. They were 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. So I, I understand uh, yeah. how you mean how you have a different kind of focus on a well, graveyard shift. Right. It's the only time everybody else is uh, silent. The house is silent. Nobody's around. There aren't any bills. Just the, yeah. the quotidian crap of the of daily life is is not present. You know. Yeah. Um. If you don't mind me asking about it, I know you, that you were in a serious accident uh, in 2011. Did... <gasps> I'm having a flashback. Oh, no. Ask me. I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> Sorry. This is where we cut away to yeah. a totally different uh, space, like on True Detective. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did that change the way that you approached uh, the way that you wrote or the way that you picked the what you wanted to write about uh, uh, absolutely it changed it, change, it didn't change what i wanted to write about it cemented my conviction really because prior to that and i'll try to tell this quick uh prior to that devil's punch bowl my previous book in 2009 had been number one and i had veered off to write what i thought was going to be a one volume work which was natchez burning and i was under a very big contract to do that and then the book kept expanding and kept expanding, and I kept not finishing. And then I told the publisher I thought it would have to be two books. And then I was realizing even two probably wouldn't hold it. And I was still working in the first one and a half, and they were getting pretty disgruntled with me. They were losing their patience. And that's when I had the accident. I was pulling onto Highway 61, going about two miles an hour, and a truck hit my driver's door going 70. So when I, when I came out of the coma, a week later with a torn aorta and many, many broken bones, I just stopped caring what anybody thought, my publisher, my agent, readers, anybody, because I thought I'm writing about the South, I'm writing about race, I'm writing about family, and you can't, you can't worry what anybody thinks about that. And the funny part is, whenever I talk about this, people assume it's like an Oprah story. They're like... Uh, Oh, you followed your bliss, and look what happened. Look how good it turned out. And that is the opposite. I mean, once once I really committed to what I was doing, I sort of lost everything. I lost my publishing deal. Mm -hmm. My agent and I parted ways. I owed more money than I had back to my publisher. And I literally, at the height of my career, had no no job, no contract. And I just persevered. I kept going. And my current publisher really saved my life, just bailed me out. And so there were five years between The Devil's Punch Bowl and the trilogy coming out. And so when that thing debuted at number two, it was like it was salvation, man, because really I didn't know where my career was going. That's that's it, Now that doesn't sound realistic, but at the time it was terrifying. Oh, no, of course, yeah. Um, I would say I can imagine, but I could not at all. Um <laughs> Well, you, 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 we all go through, you know, we don't I even always talk about, them. we all go through crises, man. And, you know, almost dying is one. There are lots of kinds. But anything that makes us confront mortality, I think, makes you just gut check and say, what am, what am I doing? Yeah. You know? Yeah. If, if people listening out there, if you haven't had a near-death ex, uh, experience yet, you need to get on that. It's going to help out. Yeah. <laughs> well, ironically, it could, but I don't recommend yeah. no it. No one come back and sue me after exactly, uh, hearing that exactly. Yeah. Um, so your latest is Cemetery Road. Uh, can I ask what inspired you to write that specifically and what the most challenging part of diving into that was? Yeah, I started out actually to write a different book. 
that was set in, <laughs> that was set in Oxford, Mississippi. It was sort of a a noir kind of double indemnity thing. Oh, I, great! Yeah, and it, it's a good story, but it just felt too confining and too small and too commercial to me at the time. You know, I wasn't I wasn't ready to write a three hundred page book, I guess. You know, and so <laughs> so uh, this book was talking to me. Uh, partly because of what we've been living through politically, partly because I, I I lost my dad. I know a lot of people who left small towns in their youth, and they're getting to the age where they're having to come back home and take care of an ailing parent, and their their careers suffer mightily sometimes when they do that. But you know, everybody finds a way to do it. You know, um, I've got a buddy. I don't want to say his name, but real successful in L.A. in the music business and played with all the people we know, you know, and, and he's having to come home a lot. Um, and so anyway, I, I realized that this was a thing a lot of people could relate to. And this this journey of people who have left home and then return home, you know, you go off and you become someone else. You've become a fully-fledged adult. You find this whatever your real identity is. But when they come home, they're the person they were when they left 30 years before. And that can be a shock, and they confront unfinished business and things left unsaid and old resentments. And, I mean, that's just the basic family part, and that's, that's part of what's there in the book. And, you know, the other two things that are there are, you know, the desperation of a small town. I've, I've watched Mississippi, like the rest of America, only worse, which is how a lot of Mississippi mm-hmm. things tend to be. I've watched these river towns just shrink and shrink and hit a tipping point, and people become desperate. And so— it's about what people are willing to do when a chance at salvation is offered to them and how aggressive they might be against neighbors who threaten that. But at the very core of this book is a secret that I don't want to provide any kind of spoiler for. I think it's... Yeah, I'm please not, don't. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure it's ever been in any book quite this way. I think women are going are gonna to really gravitate to this book and it's a shock it's a shocking thing to contemplate but i think when you get to the bottom of the secret you go wow that's that's not quite what i thought it was and who knows what people will do you know when yeah. they're desperate so yeah how do, it's hard to promote a book like this it's unusual <laughs> it's not it's not some simplistic you know oh this is about the i don't want to say anything cuz i'll make enemies but you know what i'm saying yeah you can't you can't really deliver the whole hook without blowing it you can't like, exactly. Yeah. So we we won't tell everybody, you know, the, the, <laughs> the big surprise at the end that Rosebud was his sled the whole time. Yeah, and yeah, exactly, don't worry. Exactly. I think everyone listening is probably too young to get that spoiler that I just let's threw hope. Out. Let's hope somebody got that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is maybe the most important question I have for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know what this is. Yep. Go ahead. So. At the center of Cemetery Road, there's the Bienville Poker Club. They're a really powerful force. Uh, so naturally, I need to know how strong your poker game is. My poker game is abominably weak. And any, <laughs> anything that has to do with poker, I, the guy who discovered me, okay, was mm-hmm. the editor at, at Dutton years ago. He's a freelance editor now, but we still talk on the phone whenever I'm writing a book, all through. He was a competitive poker player for a while, and so... Any all my poker references, I call him. <laughs> I, I I would make a fool of myself, you know. So, do you do you know how many words total do you think that you've written in your lifetime? Oh man, that's literally you got to be I, up there. <laughs> yeah, let let I couldn't even figure, but let's figure an average book for me is one hundred and fifty, one hundred sixty thousand words, and the 
Things like Natchez burning are 240,000. So that one alone, let's call that 600,000 for the trilogy, easily a couple million, you know? So that's a lot of words uh, that you've put down to paper. And today we're going to test your memory of all of them. It's time to play the self-awareness game. So these are all clips from audiobooks of yours. You wrote all of these, so don't blame us. Uh, they are short, just a paragraph, sometimes even shorter, and they can be from anywhere within any of your books. I think we should have a little friendly wager on this. Oh, actually. no. <laughs> you said That might be illegal, though. Yeah, you said you weren't good at uh, poker, but I feel like you're trying to hustle me now. <laughs> Uh, let's, let's, we'll t use the first one as a test. Let's yeah. do it. Um, we did want to make it a little easier for you, though. So with Cemetery Road coming out, all the clips that we picked involve someone getting onto a road in some shape or, or oh, fashion. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So let's start with clip number one. Here we go. At 10.40 a.m., I walk out to the Flex to head for my morning coffee at Nadine's store. Crossing the open space between the building and my vehicle, I turn in all directions, looking for threats. I spent the previous ten minutes briefing reporters on what they'll be doing today. This was tricky, since I don't want to reveal the existence of the mystery PDF file yet. Yeah, name that tune. That's Marshall McEwen leaving the newspaper after <laughs> discovering the USB flash drive. Got it. <laughs> wow so so not e not just the the title you can identify but also like let me give you everything that's going on in it <laughs> I, I, you know we'll, we'll see i'll be surprised if i'm stumped but you never know let's mm -hmm. see do we go to number two yeah so number two here we go driving down highway 61 from natchez He'd thought of Angola Farm out in the darkness between the road and the Mississippi River, glowing like some fortified island of lost souls. Most of the prisoners chained inside the farm belonged there, but the hypocrisy of harsh punishment for men who'd ripped off a few hundred dollars in Louisiana stuck in Walt's craw. Wow, that is uh, from the trilogy, but... I I would guess Natchez Burning, but I can't be sure. Um, yeah, see, this is where it gets tricky when you got multiple yeah. books in the same spot. In my mind, see, the trilogy is really just one enormous thing. It's mm -hmm. I, it's hard to remember whether. And I've written that sort of drive past Angola Prison. I've done that more than once. So oh I mean, yeah, I know. I, th I feel like you're about to hear it again. <laughs> you got <laughs> you got me on that one. So what is that? What is that from? That one is from the Bone Tree. Ah, oh, okay. Wow, you yeah. got me. All right. All right. So. Uh, on to clip number three. Okay, here we go. I get in and start the engine, then pull the big sedan out within a few yards of the edge of Jewish Hill and Park, leaving the motor running. In the distance, the sun seems to be dropping faster, flaming orange filling the clouds above the river where it winds through the still green fields. God, you got me with that one, Andrew. This one was the toughest one, I thought. Okay, are you, you sure this is a HarperCollins book right here? Uh, I believe, I mean, I had access to it. So, it so it if not, then there's a bigger issue at, at it, hand. It sounds like Devil's Punch Bowl to me, but uh, I guess it's not. I guess it's part of the trilogy, huh? It actually, it is from the Death Factory. Oh, 
But I didn't even have that in my head when yeah. we were thinking. Okay, yeah, that was that, the one I thought I'd pull a fast one on you with. Yeah, you did because I was like, wait, that that doesn't fit in my repertoire of, of books with Harper. I don't think, but it, you're right, it does. Okay, uh, don't worry, we're gonna we're gonna get back onto more familiar ground for these Man, these last two. <laughs> you you were you were smart picking things that are just like people getting onto a road or being in a car because mm-hmm. there are very very few markers to clue you. I in actually on. I tried to put in more markers and it it got a little tough. So yeah. I didn't mean to make it as difficult for you as I did. But you should okay. you should have bet on this. All right, here we go. <laughs> Number four. Number four. I'm blasting across the Louisiana Delta at 85 miles an hour, primeval darkness covering the land like a shroud. My xenon high beams bore a tunnel through the night, triggering a riot of eye shine from startled deer, possums, foxes, raccoons, and the occasional cow resting close to a fence. Yeah, that's the beginning of the bone tree, right? For number four? Or is it the beginning of Mississippi blood? Dude, I think let's take your second answer on that one. You, okay. You're correct. That is the yeah. beginning of uh, Mississippi blood. I, I knew it was the beginning again. Man. Wow, this is this is embarrassing. But hey, that's, that's <laughs> life, you know. Don't worry, it's not embarrassing because the, the fact that we have this many books that you've published that have sold well for you to guess from, uh, the joke is not on you. <laughs> okay, but now nah, it's it's funny. This is teaching me something because. Um, these things like that, these scenes that you write that are sort of a, a guy on the road, you know, hypnotic, having thoughts, et cetera, but it's not tied directly to the story. Mm-hmm. They just sort of exist um, out in this other dimension, I guess, in my mind. They're not really linked to the story. You know? Yeah. It's don't, funny. Don't let this stop you from writing those, though, because I think yeah. people, people enjoy those parts. I do, too, actually. <laughs> all right. All right. Number five. Let's Fine, see the final I- one. Yeah. Can I, can I get redemption here? Here we go. Can you tell me how to get there? No. The times I went there, it was night. And I was in a boat. I ain't never been good at directions like that. Everything looks the same in the swamp. Frank or Snake always took me out there. Okay, that... Is Mississippi Blood, right? No, that one's Natchez Burning. <laughs> unless, unless I put these in the wrong order by accident. Oh, wow. At first I thought, I'm going, the guy doing the audio there is really doing the southern accent there. That distracted me, but it sounded like um, the cat lady, but it's not. That's one of the Knoxes right there, right? Mm-hmm. It's saying that, yeah. Wow, man, you got me on all of them. I'm stunned here, except the, what, the second one or first you got or You got two. You got two of them correct on there. So is it safe to say that every time that you write a scene with someone in a car from now on, they're going to mention the title of the book passingly? <laughs> yeah, that, that's good. I'm going to give myself a clue. Absolutely. <laughs> now, what this, what this taught me, though, this really taught me something, which is that there's how artificial the sort of splits are in that trilogy, really, that, that in my mind, it just is one single thing, and it's sort of the... Imagine if you ask Tolkien, you know, about yeah. Lord of the Rings. It's all, you know, it's all just one thing. And you you have to, the the way the industry's built, you have to split it up. Yeah. You know? This is your kill bill. Uh, you would have put it together as one big volume if they would have let you. Yes, yeah. exactly. Oh, no question, man. No, nobody would have bought it. Though. So technically, you got them all right because you knew what series they were from. And in your mind, they're all the same, same book anyway. 
Wow. I, you know, I, I wonder if you'd, if you'd had clips from earlier books, I think it would have been an easier distinction because yeah. they're from a different story, you know. Yeah. But anyway, no excuses, man. I didn't get them. So. <laughs> Thank you for playing the self-awareness game. Yeah, not too self-aware, huh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, you know my motto, man, write them and forget them. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was drink tab and hit tab. Yeah, yeah, yeah either one. God, <laughs> well, this, this really taught me something. I've gained some self-awareness today. Oh, I'm happy. I'm happy that the, this actually had a, a learning part to it because so far it's been very frivolous. <laughs> you, uh, yeah, yeah, you, you were crafty with that anyway. A big thank you to Greg Isles. Cemetery Road, read by the magnificent Scott Brick, is available now wherever audiobooks are sold. I'm excited now to get to our newest segment here on the show. So, lo and behold, our first listener-based game. Everybody, drum roll, please. This is the listening party. Are we being recorded right now? Yes, we are. Okay, mm-hmm. so we can just start. Yeah, absolutely. So, I-, I should say it's not just me your sterling host, Andrew Caberline, here with you. We have some other people uh, from the audio team who have hopped into the recording booth slash conference room. Uh, So do you guys want to introduce yourselves and maybe a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, Sure. Um, First of all, Andrew, I would like to say thank you so much for having me on today. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. It was only my decision and my decision alone. Um, I'm Beth. I am the Associate Director of Marketing for Harper Audio. I sit across from Andrew. Uh, what is that like? Um, yeah, it's very interesting. Andrew, you are a loud typer. Yeah. I don't know if you realize that. I didn't. I didn't until you told me this, and I've been super conscious of it ever since. Yeah. I don't think it's changed my typing habits, though. Right. (laughs) Hi, I'm Nathan Rosborough. I am the Senior Production Manager for Harper Audio, and I sit catty corner to these fine folks with a number of computer screens hiding me from the world and windows to my back. I like the idea of you having multiple windows like behind you and in front of you since they're like windows computers too. They are when they're all no there's one Mac. There is one (laughs) Mac. Um, So the reason that we are all assembled today is to play a new game for all of the listeners at home. And this is the listening party. It's a big party atmosphere in here. Uh, We've got drinks all over the place. That's not true. So this is something that has predated my time at the company. So how did the listening party first come to be? It started with Nathan's predecessor, Sharon Matlin. Sharon is like the coolest lady ever. She just has such an offbeat sense of humor and knows everything about audio. So we decided to make our weekly production meetings more fun by playing a guessing game in the meetings. We play a clip from like five different audiobooks, mm-hmm. and each clip contained one word that was the same. Yeah. So at the end, when you would play all the clips, we would guess... And whoever guessed right would get like a toy. Like Sharon always had like these crazy toys, like like these like you know those plastic green army men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, Sharon retired. We miss her very much, but uh, we still have those green army men, and I think it ma- it reminds us of Sharon every time. I still have the like noise popper. One time she definitely brought in 
noise poppers that probably shouldn't be brought into our office and definitely could like, they're very flammable and mine is just sitting on my desk. So maybe I should take that home and yeah. not have it here anymore. She got me a gun for Christmas one year. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of gun? What did it shoot? Okay, well, it shoots Q-tips. Yeah, okay. So... <laughs> I still Less have, problematic. I still have it, but I don't worry. I hide it. It's in my bottom drawer. Yeah, just in case you ever need it. Um, so for all of you at home, uh, here is how this is going to go down. We have three clips today that we're going to play. There is one secret word uh, that pops up in all of them. There, there are other words, I'm sure, that pop up like and and a and of, but we're not looking for that. It should be kind of obvious that the word we're looking for is more stand out ish so you at home you're going to have a chance to win all three of the books that we play clips from today to enter email us at harperaudio at gmail.com with the subject listening party and the secret word in the body of the email winner will be selected from those who get the right word and that winner will get again all three audiobooks that we're about to play uh, so for any complete rules and fine print and all that kind of stuff, go to the link in the show notes. Before we start playing them, we've all been competitors in this game before. Beth, do you have any tips on, on how to win? I have no tips on how to win because <laughs> I never win this game. I am really bad at this game and it's super embarrassing because everyone else seems to be good at it. So Andrew, why don't you tell yeah. me how to become good at this game? Well, I'll tell you... Uh, my key to success was always drawing an image on my doodle pad of what I thought the word was. I don't know if that actually helped me, but I only ever won when I did that too. Uh, I, I, you know, I think in that first clip, you really have to just not think and just write down as many words that sound out of the ordinary as possible. And then I tried to then in the next clip like circle any word that pops up again. So I'm just kind of like eliminating my list. But then if, if you don't have that word on the first clip, then you're you're kind of screwed. Yeah. So what if someone were to just write the every time? Yeah, that's technically a word, but it's not the word. Should we uh, get into the clips? What's the, the first clip that we have today, Nathan? A new book coming out yesterday, if you're listening on the day of release, um, <laughs> called The Adventures of Barry and Joe. It's a graphic novel. Yes. Written by Adam Reed. Yes. And it has a lot of people in it. Yeah, it's got a bunch of people in it. You got Ron Butler. You got Adam Reed himself. You've got Jonathan Davis, January Lavoie, and Oliver Wyman. Uh, this book is cuckoo bananas. It's super crazy. Uh, it is a graphic novel, but the the way it was adapted for audio, it, it feels like a complete whole like blockbuster type movie almost. Uh, all you really need to know to about this book to be like, yeah, I want to I want to read it is to know that it is Obama and Biden time traveling together. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a bunch of other like historical figures that show up. There's a great press. And Sam image. Jackson. Yeah, Sam Jackson is in there. There's a great press image for the book that has Harriet Tubman wielding two guns. Uh, so that's that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with here. Really funny, really irreverent, really kind of out there. I'm a fan of Deepak Chopra making an appearance. <laughs> yeah. Well, not him, but the, yeah. the the character of himself. Yeah. Elon Musk is in there too. Kind of like the... Kind of. Kind of like... He's, uh, he's the comic relief. He is to this what like the Q is to Bond, <laughs> there you I go. think. Yeah. yeah. 
So without further ado, yeah, let's listen to uh, The Adventures of Barry and Joe. It all happened so fast. Obama began as Joe the robot dog lined up all 37 of the orbs they had collected side by side. Obama turned the National Mall into his own ballistic driving range. He didn't think. He just ripped them off as fast as he could, using all the skill he had gained playing apocalypse golf and driving his way across the country. He'd crack one and step over to the next immediately. The fireworks show began. Bombs burst in the air as the giant robot flailed wildly, almost dancing, trying to swat the incoming fire. Obama could sense that this battle was perhaps winnable. His swing was in such fine form that he wished he had an audience. Obama added his own color commentary. The president is on fire today, Bob. Look at his form. I'd say his swing is looking better than ever. Two consecutive body blows rocked the giant, who stumbled back and snapped the already bruised Washington Monument in half. The robot could not get a clean shot off during the barrage of exploding orbs. Obama was halfway through his arsenal when the giant recovered enough to charge. Joe fearlessly raced toward the giant in defense. Joe, no! It was too late. Joe the robo-pooch, with bright blue eyes, ran for the giant robot, gnawing at its ankle with everything it had. He was kicked off and sent flying, smeared against the ground on impact. The little guy didn't stand a chance. So I, I, I always look for words that stick out, and I'm hoping, but I'm not confident that the secret word is going to be robo-pooch. I was also going to yeah. say robo-pooch. <laughs> Apocalyptic golf, also yeah. one that probably, I, I don't see a way that it fits into our other two titles. <laughs> so what is up next on the docket? So I think Beautiful Bad is next, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, so Beautiful Bad is one that I picked. And I picked it because I love psychological thrillers. Um, I love anything with crime. I'm really into murder, all that stuff. It's really <laughs> what does my, that say uh, about you, Beth? It's really my, uh, my <laughs> wheelhouse. You know, I think it says that I'm a normal person because everybody likes this stuff. That is a good point, yeah. Uh, at least that's how I like to um, think of it. <laughs> Anyways, so Beautiful Bad is new. It's out now. You can get it everywhere you buy audiobooks. Uh, it's by Annie Ward. It's her second book. Um, and her first book was a novel. And this is her first, like, psychological thriller. So it's a departure from what she normally does. So basically, if you loved Gone Girl, if you loved Girl on the Train, this is a perfect audiobook for you. And it's really twisty. It's got a crazy ending. And the gist is that it's about a woman who's a travel writer. She's overseas. She meets this British soldier. They fall in love. They get married. They move to the States. 16 years later, he's got PTSD. And a murder happens. And it's crazy. And she's like, what's going on? So that's beautiful bad. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, it also features a brilliant multicast narration from XE Sands, Vivian Lahaney, and Paul Fox. Let's play the clip. <laughs> they told me that I had a mild traumatic brain injury, a concussion. Nobody said anything about seeing a neurologist. Nobody could have predicted you might have a seizure. I'm not even sure you had a seizure. But the other day, when you kept repeating... I need to get Charlie. I need to get Charlie. It made me remember that in our first session, you were clenching and unclenching your hands. What does that mean? I don't know. 
That's exactly what I'm trying to tell you. I don't know. You need to see a neurologist. You need to get your head checked. I can't believe you just said I need to get my head checked. I burst out laughing. Okay, I say finally. If I find a neurologist and get this EEG done, can I still keep coming to you to do my writing? Of course you can, Maddie. Of course. Good. I sit there for a second, processing these new upsetting developments. And then I remember. Oh, I brought my homework and my photos for the photo exercise. Are we still doing that one? Absolutely. So there is Beautiful Bad. Uh, I'm already kind of shivering in my seat after listening to it. I feel like the psychological thrillers, they, they, oh, they make me feel physically away. What yeah. I like is a good therapy session in the middle of a book because it makes me feel a little more Normal. like the average Joe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is it my turn yet? I think it is your turn. Bring us on home, Nathan. So it turned out that our third book here is another multicast. I decided to pull something from across the pond. Our friends at Harper UK actually published this and it just came out last week in the U.S. for the first time. It's by one of our favorite children's authors, David Williams. It's called Bad Dad. It's a middle grade. I like a lot of things about this book. Well, first of all, I'm the dad of the group over here. I've got a four-year-old. I've got a one-year-old. We do a lot of reading. We do a lot of audiobook listening. It's about five and a half hours. It's great for a road trip. It's great for listening one hour at a time. Bedtime stories is good for after dinner listening. It's fun for the kids to listen by themselves. If you have like a Kindle or something, they can put that on their headphones. It's got a great cast. David Williams is there. Peter Serafinovich is in uh, there. Yeah. Darth Maul himself. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Sarah Alexander, Jocelyn G. Essien, Nitin Ganatra. Music and sound effects throughout. It's really fun. In case you haven't read or heard of David Williams before, The Spectator called him the heir to Roald Dahl, and I think that's the most apt comparison you're ever going to get. He had a book come out a few years ago in America called Demon Dentist that topped the charts. So this book is funny. It's about a dad and his kid. The dad's a hot rod racer. It's um, like the British version of the General Lee. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. There is some uh, wicked crime going on. There's uh, some prison going on. Let's just have a listen. Dad raced an old mini that he had souped up himself. He had painted a Union Jack on the car and named her Queenie after a lady he admired, Her Majesty the Queen. The car became as famous in racing circles as Dad, Queenie's engine made an unmistakable sound like a lion. Dad was king of the track. He was the greatest banger racer the town had ever seen. People came from all over the country to watch him race. Nobody won more times than him. Week after week, month after month, year after year, Dad would lift the trophies above his head as the crowds cheered and shouted his name. Gilbert the Great! Gilbert the Great! Gilbert the Great! Life was golden. Because Dad was a local hero, everyone wanted to know him. Whenever he took his son out for pie and mash, the owner of the shop would give them double helpings and then wouldn't let them pay a penny. If Frank was walking down the street with his father, people in cars would beat their horns, beep beep, and smile and wave. The boy always felt a burst of pride whenever that happened. 
Frank even got marked up on a test by his maths teacher after the man got a photo taken with his father at parents' evening. No one was a bigger fan of dad than his own son. That's Bad Dad by David Williams. I want to say, too, that David Williams is as good as a narrator and performer as he is as a writer. Like, he is actually someone who I had heard first in that realm before, like, knowing he was an author. He was in a few different animated shorts that have been nominated for Oscars and uh, Revolting Rhymes from last year. So check that out. So, uh... Any any ideas in your head after hearing all those words? Maybe don't blurt it out so that everybody else uh, out there can also win. But do you feel like there were some that stuck out other than Robo Pooch? <laughs> Robo Pooch is still my top guess. Yeah. Um, even though I think I just kind of mentally added Robo Pooch, substituted that word in in my head while I was listening to the other clips. My yeah. sheet looks like a three games of boggle that just went down. <laughs> Um, and I just need to do some of that, figure out a murder mystery um, yeah. type string connection. Yeah, you're like Mind Palace kind of like visualizing. Yeah, I got you. Uh, so to you all out there at home listening, again, uh, to enter, you want to email us your winning word with the subject line saying listening party. You're going to email it to harperaudio at gmail.com. We're going to select a winner, but you got to have the word right to be eligible. And then the winner is going to get all three of these amazing audiobooks for free, which is my favorite price. Uh, why don't we throw in Cemetery Road while we're at it? Yeah, let's do that. Uh, yeah. We're feeling generous. We're, How about you get all four? <laughs> you get all four. You get Cemetery Road as well. When do they have to get these uh, submissions in by? You've got until April 27th. That's one whole month to listen and dissect all three audio tracks uh, to then send us your winning word. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get some chips. <laughs> I'm going to hang out by the old punch ball. We hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, why not search Harper Audio Presents in whatever podcast app you're using and hit the subscribe button. Better yet, write a review while you're there. It would help us out a lot. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back soon with more forays into the wide world of audiobooks.